was born jaundiced. Once I sat on a toilet seat at a truck stop and caught hemorrhoids. And I've learned to live with this chicken bone that's been lodged in my throat for the past three years. So I knew Dad would be devastated when he learned of my latest affliction. Dad, I don't want to upset you, but my left breast is developing at a significantly faster rate than my right. It can only mean one thing. Cancer. I'm dying. Okay. Sweetie, hand me the mayonnaise out of the fridge. Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that will never forget the summer it spent down by the lakeside with his first crush. I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to be hemorrhaging. I'm Seth, the host most likely to be allergic to everything. <laughs> and I'm Chris, the podcast host with flesh all a mesh. Flesh all a mesh. <laughs> all a mesh? All a mesh. We've grown really <laughs> tired of talking about aliens after two back-to-back UFO-focused episodes, so we are switching to more earthly matters, including first loves, puberty, and death. Today we'll be talking about the 1991 family drama, My Girl, My Girl, My Girl, talking about My Girl, My Girl. <laughs> Not rehearsed at all. <laughs> Just that raw passion, pure <laughs> musical talent. I think we got a shot at being the next Temptations, you guys. What, what's the opposite of a temptation? <laughs> <laughs> a dissuasion. We're the dissuasions. <laughs> That's it. There That's it our group name. <laughs> this is our 95th episode of the podcast, and we've only done a handful of straight dramas. Rain Man, Thelma and Louise, Romeo and Juliet, Contact, even though it's like sci-fi too. Train spotting. Am I missing anything? Magnolia? Magnolia. I was missing something. American Beauty. Wow, I forgot a couple. (laughs) (laughs) This is an episode about everything Becky's forgotten. (laughs) A League of Their Own. A League of Their Own. Is that a drama? That's a dramedy. I think there are arguments to be made that a lot of these are dramedies or drama with something. Yeah, I was thinking about Alien and Blade Runner, but those are more like sci-fi drama. Yeah. We thought it would be interesting to take a look back at a drama specifically targeting young people, since those kinds of movies kind of come few and far between. Some drama movies for kids that you may have seen, co-hosts, please let me know if you saw these growing up. These are not in chronological order. They're just in the order I thought of them. (laughs) Fly Away Home. Yes, I saw that. Didn't see it. Geese Geese and Anna Paquin. Yeah, that's all I know. Jeff Daniels Mm -hmm. and Jeff Daniels. Didn't see it, though. The Secret Garden. Yes. I did see it, but it didn't make much of an impression. A Little Princess? Oh, yes. And I had a little bit of a crush on A Little Princess. She Uh, was a very pretty girl. I had a crush on Alfonso Cuaron directed it. (laughs) (laughs) So good. E.T.? Does that count? 
It's a drama. I mean, I actually thought of that when thinking of this movie and other movies that are, like, emotional. Like, that would make kids emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fits in with that. And I, and I loved that movie as a kid. Stand By Me? I feel like it was R-rated, but still for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was a crossover movie where, like, adults would be okay showing their kids that movie. There are movies that star kids that adults aren't paying very much attention to and then just let their kids watch it because they think it's a kid's movie. <laughs> and that true. looks like a kid's movie. as kids on bikes oh, on, like, sure. the poster. And mm-hmm. Like, it could be like a that. variation of The Goonies, yeah. but it's much more than that. Uh, Bridge to Terabithia? The book, I I don't know if I read it, but I was familiar with the book. I just remember that book. I don't remember there even being a movie. Free Willy? Yeah. Oh, I was all over that. <laughs> I do remember watching the fuck out of that movie on Stolen Pay-Per-View. <laughs> Flight of the Navigator? I loved that movie. No, I didn't see that. The Black Stallion? Did not care about that mm-hmm. at all. The Indian in the Cupboard? I loved those books. I saw that movie, but I remember it as books. White Fang? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I never saw the movie or read the book. I was like, I've had enough wolf action as a child. <laughs> Wait, what? Wolves killed and ate my extended family. It's a long story. We don't need to go into it here. Did I miss any that I just couldn't think of? Because there aren't that many in this genre of emotional, dramatic movies for kids. I would say, I would actually um, put Wild America in there. The jo- Jonathan Taylor <laughs> oh, Thomas yeah, movie. Yeah, that goes in there. I would say Swing Kids and Newsies would go into that-ish. I guess because it was a musical but you're right it's like a they're, drama musical they're both like they're both like pretty heavy drama <laughs> one is heavier than the other yeah i feel like those deserve mention you're right though i don't think there were like a ton of kid directed dramas or <laughs> dramas directed at kids <laughs> there are not that many not, movies directed by children no dramas directed by children <laughs> Like, some of the ones you mentioned are animal-focused, so that's a common thing, is, like, those movies are often very emotional, because often the animal dies or, you know, something like that. So I think there's a template for that, but not so much for, like, human-based dramas where there isn't, like, an animal kind of hook. I think that's really true. Now that I think of the kind of narrative conventions of what we're talking about, they almost always involve the story being told from the perspective of a now-adult reminiscing on their child years. A lot of them do, yeah. Very Stephen King. Yeah. So before we talk about My Girl, My Girl takes place over one summer. I'd like to know, how did you spend your summers as a kid? How I Spent My Summer Vacation by Chris. (laughs) I guess I'm going first then, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Damn it. I spent it reading books a lot. I mean, honestly, I think that was the thing I did the most. We often went on vacation. I know we went on one very long road trip vacation. We were originally going to drive to Chicago, and we decided that was too long. So we just kind of drove to South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore. And then, like, go through Yellowstone Park, things like that. How old were you? Like, 14. Was that interesting for a 14-year-old? The sights were interesting. I think it was an interesting age to be cooped up in a car (laughs) with family and a little (laughs) sister. Um, And I do remember some bickering happening. And I I think (laughs) I, at one point, asked them, like, 
to all leave me in the hotel room <laughs> for like two hours so I could just like decompress because it was just like you're a family so you're also staying in the same room so it was a lot of family togetherness which can be nice and which can also be something that you need a little break from. That is a good point. So if I ever do that, I will make sure either my child gets her own room or, yeah, you know, if she's older, like giving her some space. And in general, like, I don't really feel like summer was as defined as I feel like it is in, like, nostalgia or pop culture. <laughs> like, you didn't go to school, but I didn't really have a big problem with school. Like, I guess a lot of kids don't really like school, but I did. So, yeah, it wasn't really that different than, like, a weekend or something. Like, I saw some friends, you know, maybe we went on vacation. I mean, I was from Seattle, so the season was different. But, I like, as a kid, you don't really notice that as much, you know? Like, you'll play outside, whether it's raining or whatever, so. Yeah, I don't have super strong, like, summer to me means, like, you know, (laughs) running through sprinklers, really. Like, because I like to play outside, and I did, but I wasn't, like, a water park kid or, like, really running through the sprinklers kid, you know. So, summer, I don't know. I think I read books. (laughs) Seth? I was the summer child. (laughs) When you hear the phrase, sweet summer child, think of Seth. That is not what I think of, no (laughs) offense. Nope, just flowers in my hair, leaping with joy. As I think I've mentioned once or twice on this podcast, I went to the same school in Louisiana from kindergarten through eighth grade. I not only went to the school during the school year, I went to the school for summer camp every summer. That's too much of the same place. It should be. But the experience of what we got to do at summer camp, which was literally just like playing all day in a bunch of different activities, was substantially different enough that it was very much like a different experience. And I would look forward to summer camp there literally all year during the school year. I was lucky that a lot of the same people who didn't go to school with me would keep coming back every summer for summer camp. So I didn't only have like my friend group at that school, like during the school year, I also had like my summer camp friends to look forward to seeing every year. The school where I went had stables and farm animals and a gigantic swimming pool. Obviously, there were different activities and stuff as you got older, but I just loved summer so much as miserably hot as New Orleans is in the summer. I knew that I had infinite pool time to look forward to and like after camp they would basically like let you hang out by the pool pretty much and like just swim and hang out or like hang out in the gym and play basketball and play ping pong and beach and or summer type sport activities at the time were really like all the physical activities and sports that I was personally interested in and that I enjoyed it all and I just loved that so much so much so that once I was entering the 8th grade that would be my last year there I actually started working my very first job ever in my life as a camp counselor at the preschool that was there because I loved kids like I had a little baby cousin I knew I would have a really good time like dealing with preschool kids all day and like playing around and having fun and I got to have like that experience working a job it was it was actual work but also it was a very like low stress fun version of that first job to have and so I did that for a couple years. I even did that for like a year or so after I had graduated eighth grade and like moved on to high school just to kind of make some spending money for myself. Aside from that, we definitely did family vacations. Usually if they were extensive at all, they would be road trips. Usually be in the summer. My God family lived in Arkansas. So we would often go up to Arkansas for like a couple weeks or so. And that's where I first heard Garth Brooks. <laughs> that's the place for it. That is certainly the place 
rejoice to hear it. And I believe it was also one summer that we did the biggest road trip that my family ever did, where we drove up to New York City and to Boston. And we spent like... I, I think it was about two and a half weeks or so. How many times did you see Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals? On that trip, we saw both Phantom of the Opera and Cats. Of course you did. <laughs> yeah, we definitely <laughs> did. And we saw no other musicals other than that. <laughs> I just really loved doing that as a road trip because it meant that we didn't have to necessarily hightail it out of there super quickly and get on to the next thing. You know, we weren't under the gun of having to show up on time for a plane ride or any of that. So that's another thing that for me leaps out as like a really wonderful summer memory, getting to be able to travel and see more of the country that I'd never seen before. We never took any family trips ever. (laughs) But I think when I was like six, we went to like Florida during Passover because over the summer I went to camp. I went to Jewish day camp for at least two summers, if not three. I'm trying to remember based on the musicals we did at camp. (laughs) And I remember Annie and I remember Fiddler. I'm not sure. Oh, Oliver. Okay, three. Three years. We all we also did musicals at our summer camp. And it's, uh-huh. that's one of the ways of passing time. Uh-huh. Apparently everyone had much more musical summers than I did. <laughs> so I did Jewish day camp. And it was at a Jewish school or a temple or something. But it had like a pool and stuff. So it was like a, a whole campus of some mm-hmm. sort. And there would be prayer in the morning, but I didn't have to go to prayer because I can't speak Hebrew. And then I would just wash my hands and say, like, like before you eat, and, and that's it. That was what made it Jewish. <laughs> and then I went to fat camp for four summers. <laughs> that was sleepaway camp from 12 to 15. So that's how I spent my summers. And that's an entirely different story for when we do the movie Heavyweights at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved those summers. Yeah, like, a lot of my summer was going to Splish Splash, the water park on Long Island. Awesome. Seeing friends, staying up till 3 or 4 a.m. watching Stolen Pay-Per-View. <laughs> yeah, and just to add to the course, there were multiple water parks in the Louisiana area. And, of course, at every year's summer camp, we would go, like, at least one or two times. What um, were the name of the water parks? Blue Bayou. That mm. is the legend. Oh, you gotta do that in Louisiana. Oh, you gotta. But also, I'm happy to announce, apparently, someone has finally bought and reopened Blue Bayou. It is a genuinely insane, gigantic water park. And they have, like, water cannons where you can, like, spray down (laughs) passersby. Um, (laughs) They have slides that should not be legal. And for me, that's the mark of the best kind of water park experiences, where you know you're taking your life into your hands. Oh, I was in the tri-state area to get commercials for Action Park that was in New Jersey. That was the subject of a HBO documentary recently called Class Action Park. (laughs) Because that's what it was. It was either called Class Action Park or Traction Park. Because several people died! (laughs) (laughs) It sounds so much more exciting when you say it that way. Yeah. I liked school, but also didn't like school because for a while I was made fun of a lot. And I think I got somewhat of a reprieve over summers, especially at fat camp. But at like even Jewish day camp, I never felt cool, but I felt less lame. (laughs) Or at least the normal people that made fun of me weren't Jewish, so they weren't there. (laughs) So (laughs) it's interesting that you guys both had social experiences during summer because I don't associate summer with being very social. It you sounds didn't go to like camp. It, it sounds yeah. like well, but it sounds like summer was kind of your cocoon time. Yeah, I think so. And it, I remember it being more like I know I played with like neighborhood kids and stuff when I was a kid, but I also did that like at night or on the weekends. So I didn't have like a thing to do over the summers. I don't think. 
I do have to say, you talking about reading over the summer reminded me that when I was very little, I loved going to the library and they would have a summer challenge or something, like yep. how many books you read and you that. get the bookmarks and stickers and stuff. And I take Sydney to the library once a week. It's the summer and they are giving away little like goodie bags full of like reading challenges like she's so little she's only two but they have stuff for like all ages and i'm just like this is so nice that's so great i I miss this like i can't wait to like when she's a little bit older when she can actually read like take her to the library and have her like fill out the books i read over the summer like i'm really excited for that yeah i always won that audience what you can't see but you can definitely hear is the pride in chris's voice as he expresses that and the medals all the medals i have (laughs) jingle jangle jingle jangle my girl came out in 1991 and i just wanted to give a little bit of insight into what kids were into in 1991 it was the release of super nintendo so that was maybe the biggest deal the biggest deal ever was it was super (laughs) cabbage patch dolls were still very much a thing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Technodrome playset. Chris, did you own that? Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) I definitely did not, and I envied the kids who did. Uh, WWF Wrestling Buddies? Nope. I remember that. My neighbor had those. I was never into WWE, and... My cousin loved wrestling, and I remember him having all of them. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember what... They're like pillows. They're like pillows in the shape of wrestlers. Yeah. Ew. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, it's not gross. Well, they're maybe. not made of real wrestlers, Chris. <laughs> and rock band Barbie, which I definitely had. I don't think that you two would know what that is, but it's a very yeah. specific Barbie in a specific pink outfit. You know, you know that one, the Barbie in the pink outfit. Honestly, oh, I gosh. think I remember Rockstar Barbie. I she really I stood out from all the goth Barbies that had been released <laughs> since the sixties. <laughs> yeah, I had Bauhaus Barbie, but that was it. So, my girl was directed by Howard Zeef. It was written by Loris Elowani. Hope I'm saying that right. I'd also like to say she is one of the writers of the Brady Bunch movie. I noticed that too. I looked her up and wanted to know more about her. And there was not more to find besides that fact. Yeah. The movie was released November 27th, 1991. The budget was 17 million. Would you care to guess how much money this movie made? 85 million? I didn't, I don't know the exact number, but it was more than that because I looked. 121 million. Holy shit! It was a hit! Okay, that's a real hit. That's pretty substantial. Very big. It came after Home Alone. So Macaulay Culkin had the Macaulay Culkin factor. Yeah, it was a Mac attack. Yeah. And uh, and I also think just word of mouth. The movie went through a bunch of weird titles. It was originally (laughs) titled Born Jaundiced. (laughs) Oh my god. And it's referenced in the film in the first line of dialogue Veda says to the camera. That she was born jaundiced. I know. I saw that too. And even though it's the first line, I've never paid attention to what that was. Me and so neither. I actually had to rewatch and I was like, she does say that. <laughs> like, I didn't believe that. I was like, that yeah. must have been cut out. Yeah. But it's not. It's in there. Yeah. So Imagine Entertainment produced the movie. They had a $500 contest of who could come up with the best title because they didn't want to call it Born Jaundiced. <laughs> Submitted titles included Morning Glory, like morning funeral parlor. Oh, no. Yuck. In lieu of flowers. Oh, God. Dearly Departed. <laughs> I Am Woman. And Veda with an exclamation point. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Well, we have the title for a musical that Beta! we inevitably make off of My Girl. We're going to be photoshopping that poster. <laughs> Those are all terrible titles. They're all uniquely awful in their own way. Well, Brian Grazer was the one who came up with My Girl as the title. 
God, so he man. won the five hundred dollars because he's really in need of money. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, good on him. Because I don't think, <laughs> in lieu of flowers, would have made one hundred twenty million dollars. <laughs> no. The movie takes place in the summer of 1972. 11-year-old Veda lives with her father, Harry, a widowed funeral director who can't connect with his daughter. Veda's best friend is a boy named Thomas J who is allergic to everything, and Veda is a hypochondriac who constantly believes she's dying. It's my mother. Do you remember her? No. Grandma said she's in heaven. What do you think it's like? What? Heaven. I think... Everybody gets their own white horse, and all they do is ride them and eat marshmallows all day. And everybody's best friends with everybody else. When you play sports, there's no teams, so nobody gets picked last. But what if you're afraid to ride horses? It doesn't matter, because they're not regular horses. They got wings. And it's no big deal if you fall. It's just land in a cloud. That doesn't sound so bad. Come on. So did you guys ever see My Girl when you were a kid? Yes. I had a pretty significant My Girl story. I saw My Girl in the theaters, and it is one of the very first times I remember ever crying while watching a movie in a packed movie theater. Wow. How old were you in 91? Uh, I did not expect to do math. <laughs> I would have been in first grade. Oh, wow. And you cried. Wow, you cried. Yeah. Wow. So maybe like eight or nine. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I remember crying, watching plenty of Disney movies. You know, like we talked about before, like in Dumbo, Baby Mine, I fucking wept openly. An American Tale, I would play the cassette soundtrack over and over and just weep my eyes out to somewhere out there. But My Girl was also one of the very first non-animated movies that I remember bringing me to tears. I loved that it was a drama. I loved the whole cast of this movie. I thought it was just absolutely perfectly cast at the time. And I was entranced by both Anna Klumsky and Macaulay Culkin and by their performances in this. Like, I wanted to be as cool as either or both of them. I just loved how precocious Anna Klumsky's character was. And I also recognize now that I both identified with and was very much in love with Macaulay Culkin's <laughs> character in this movie. Aww, the um, little nerdy blonde kid. Little sensitive Aww. emo boy with glasses who was allergic to everything. Like, <laughs> sign me up. I could see Thomas J in red cowboy boots. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that's in the outtakes. But fun fact, I had totally forgotten that Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd were the adult leads of this movie. <laughs> really? It's not like they're forgettable, because again, like I loved all of the characters in this movie and loved the cast, but just the primacy of Macaulay Culkin and Anna Kolinsky and those two roles, I think just like blew everything else out of the water for me. Hmm. So yeah, that was my my girl story, and I, I don't think I rewatched that movie since I was a kid. You didn't own it? Never owned it, never really rented it at Blockbuster, because again, like that ending, which I mean, l- we can just say it out loud, the boy dies. Wait, what? <laughs> I turned it off 20 minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> but that moment really, really impacted me emotionally. And by moment, do you mean the funeral? Both that and the moment where he gets stung by bees and okay. dies. 
if I can connect it to any one memory in my actual life that it reminded me of, there was a girl named Stephanie who was in my class at school, and she'd been there with me like since kindergarten. And right around this time, she had she had had to leave school because they found a hole in her heart. Hmm. And a couple months later, she died. Aww. And I wasn't even that close of friends with her, but I was friends with her, and she was like one of the people I'd gone to school with for years and years. And she was the first young person in my life in any way, shape, or form who had either had like a health medical malady like that or who had passed away. And that kind of fucks you up to like have your first experience of mortality, even if it's not someone who's super close to you. So I definitely think that it kind of tripped those same emotional wires. I don't know if I like necessarily consciously avoided watching it again, but I just knew what I was in for after seeing it, you know, once in the theater and maybe once or twice after that and didn't really seek it out later on. I first experienced My Girl as literature. What, the novelization? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> so this is another movie that my mom saw before I did, and then basically spoiled for me, you know, like, somehow told me the plot. God. Like, I think she saw this, you know, on her own with a friend or something, and I'm sure that I, like, wanted to know more about it. Like, I would probably, like, pestered her for information on movies. But there was something captivating about this movie, because it starred child actors, especially Macaulay Culkin, who was, like, the child star of this moment. This was a year after Home Alone, which every kid saw. And the media was like kind of weirdly obsessed with him too in a way that I don't know the last time a child star got that much attention. Stranger Things girl, maybe? And even she was older too. I mean like, this was like a eight-year-old and like he was and I mean I think part of it is like he was hanging out with like Michael Jackson and stuff and yeah (laughs) he was you know like Shirley Temple I think is the only other child star that I can think of who had the same level of kind of pathological media attention yeah I mean not like Jodie Foster or Brooke Shields they didn't have they were both older too I mean Jodie Foster wasn't probably that much older but I don't think she got like this kind of attention. He like, was very young. He was yeah. that's the thing. There was a lot of creepy undue attention on like Brooke Shields when she was like thirteen and fourteen and up. Um but Macaulay Culkin like hit it so big when he was and way pre adolescent, like, like a child. The star of one of the couple biggest movies of that year and a sequel and a lot of other movies that made that's a true. lot of money. Like he wasn't just a total one hit wonder. But anyway, at this point, because he was that age, is like he felt like someone like you would go to school with. That was what was right. kind of fascinating about him as a star. But, like, this was a very different kind of film, obviously. And the movie, like, he's on the poster, but I don't think the movie really pushed him in the way that it might have of, like, being like, this is a Macaulay movie. He does kind of take a backseat, I think. Yeah, which was very surprising. Mm -hmm. So, like, it seems like something different, you know, like something that I hadn't seen before. It obviously wasn't, like, a Home Alone-style movie. And I think I was just on the cusp of wanting to see things that had a little more drama in them. Like, I still had a few years of enjoying kids' movies in me, because I would see several more Macaulay Culkin movies that I would not bother to watch now. (laughs) Uh, Richie Rich and... The Good Son? Getting Even With Dad. I'm about to mention The Good Son. (laughs) I would totally watch that again, though. Yeah, I think I was curious at this age to see a movie that had tragedy in it, especially centered on a kid, because in a way that felt so taboo at the time, because there aren't that many movies. I mean, we kind of talked about child dramas, and not many of them actually deal with death in a, like, striking way. Like, it's often, like, an animal or something like that, or a parent that kind of dies off screen, like, early on, but, like, it's not this, like, real grappling with death. 
death. And at this age, like, I had no experience with death at all of anyone, especially anyone my age, like no one at my school, you know, had died, no kids that I knew. So this was almost like theoretical to me that this could happen, like almost in the way that like Veda kind of experiences it. Like she has to kind of learn that children can die in this movie. And I think because of that, like, I think my mom was unsure, like if I should see this or possibly didn't want to go take me again. I don't know. (laughs) I can't remember if I saw it in theaters or on video, but I did see it around the time that it came out. But I had that feeling that I had with a lot of movies, which is like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Like, it seemed very heavy at the time. So I read the book. Which is what I did with a lot of movies I was kind of realizing as I was thinking about this. The Good Son is another (laughs) movie starring Macaulay Culkin that was perhaps too adult for me. That one is rated R. Yeah, I saw that one with my mom. That was an early (laughs) one that I did see. Like, I was... It wasn't right when it came out, but it w- I was like, it was before I saw most rated R movies, because it's probably only rated R because it's like about a child. It's not really particularly violent or anything. It's about like, he's trying to kill people. Yeah, but like you could show, like it's not violent. It doesn't show any like actual like blood or gore. So I think I it could be PG-13, except for that they didn't want kids to go see it. That's true. For that reason. So that was one that when my mom told me about the plot to that too, I remember her telling me about like the end where the mom has to choose. I haven't seen this movie. Oh my God. Okay. Wow. I feel like I need to see it. Okay. Done. Easy. No, because this was this was the movie that I like. I I knew that I wouldn't be allowed to see it, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" There's a movie where Macaulay is a naughty boy. Because that, I, I that did, was the promotion I, at the time. It was. It totally was. Yeah. And Chris, like, I found him relatable, kind of as a child actor, which is also a weird thought because child actors do not have relatable lives in any way. <laughs> but like, I remember that being like, "Ooh, the forbidden Macaulay vehicle." Yeah, and unlike My Girl, that one definitely <laughs> leaned into the Macaulay-ness of it. It was like, yeah. mm-hmm. bad seed starring Macaulay. Mac does attack. That was literally the high-concept pitch. Mm-hmm. So, um, there was that. There was also Batman Returns, I read as a novelization before I saw the movie. <laughs> Jurassic Park wasn't a novelization. I think they had one, but I, wa- I read the actual like Michael Crichton book. But like this was my way of like testing out movies that I wasn't sure if I could handle that were either like too violent or too adult. And, like, kind of seeing if I had the stomach for them. I need to ask, is the line, just the pussy I was waiting for, in the novelization of Batman Returns? <laughs> it's actually a title. It probably isn't. <laughs> like, these novelizations were for children, right? Yeah, like, young adult. So okay. Young adult, very much so. Because I remember there was, like, a Jurassic Park, I think, novelization, like, for kids that, like, totally skipped over, like, even any death. <laughs> the dinosaurs had a tea party with Dennis Nedry. <laughs> yeah. They were interesting, because it's, like, they're based on the screenplay, right? And at the time, like, I didn't realize at what stage, I mean, I'm still not entirely sure, I guess, at what stage, but, you know, like, it's not like the movie's finished and and then they write the novelization. I never thought about it. Like, it's probably based on, like, the shooting script, and then the novelization is probably written, like, they have a sense that this is going to be a movie that they should have a novelization for. So oftentimes there's, like, scenes in the novelization that are not, that, like, get cut out of the movie, or a line, you know, that you change on, like, the shooting day. So I would notice, like, little things, like, lines that are different in the novelization, and be like, huh, I wonder why they changed that. And now, like, I realize that it's because, you know, like, you don't get a script and then shoot it exactly as is, and then there's the movie it's a whole like process where you like workshop things so it was a really interesting like first window into a screenplay almost because it's like 
based on the original screenplay. And they're not meant to be, you know, like literature in the sense that you're not like reading it like, oh my gosh, like what a thought provoking like line of prose, you know, it's like, they're still kind of, you know, very dialogue driven. And but these were actually, as I was thinking about it for this podcast, like some of the most vivid reading experiences I had as a kid, because unlike a lot of the novels I was reading, which were like YA novels, like these were more mature subject matter, because some of them were based on like movies that are basically aimed at adults like Batman Returns or older kids. Like I remember in Batman Returns like there's scenes describing like their interior thoughts when they're like dating like and doing like the flirty banter as Interesting. like Selena and Bruce and it's like I still remember those thoughts when I'm watching the movie. It's almost like I'm having two experiences or like a deeper experience with the characters because I like have been in their heads. It's a very strange thing that you don't really read those kinds of things as an adult. So I had almost forgotten gotten this until we were talking about this. When did you actually see the movie? (laughs) Well, I think it was... I I have the sense that maybe it was in theaters for a long time because it was such a hit, but probably like a sleeper hit. So it's possible that my mom would have taken us like a few months after it came out. Or maybe I saw it on video because I know like my mom still really likes this movie and so she would have wanted to see it again. So I think it was probably something that it was like, I don't know if you want to like see this in the theater because it's pretty tragic and upsetting. But at home, we can like all, you know, like sit down and watch it. And, you know, then you can have like a discussion if you need to about child death or something. <laughs> I don't think we had that discussion, but it was possible. So this movie just exists in this weird place for me. Like it's like hybrid between like me as a voracious reader as a child and a watcher and writer of dramatic stories. And it, it does hit like a sweet spot of things that I like which are like character driven dramas with like a tragic element and yeah I just as I was like thinking about all this I realized like how impactful these novelizations were to me even though I didn't read a ton of them the ones that I mentioned are like most of the ones I can remember but just that like I don't know that I would have the same approach to like film that I do now because I had that early experience of like getting into the psychology of these characters deeper and that's something I do when I'm writing is like I'm really thinking through like what their thought process is and I don't know if that's something that like you usually experience because as you're watching the movie it's it's just a different thing yeah well and it's certainly not a thing that you usually go into a movie primed with already you don't normally go into seeing a movie the first time already understanding the emotional inner core of every single character involved yeah, and like so if if it's based on a book, they've probably changed a lot more because it was right. written as a book, but if it's the novelization they don't really change very much. It's just like little tiny things because it was already based on like the shooting script. So yeah, like I almost like had the experience of like the book was better, <laughs> even though the book was based on the screenplay because I just, I think I had more of an experience with the book and it was like more emotional and the story just lends itself well to that. Even though like as a novelization, it probably wasn't like a great piece of writing, but that was my experience. So like I liked the movie, but to me, this experience is a book experience, <laughs> weirdly enough. Weird. I remember seeing this in theaters I think I remember there being an audience like like when his glasses fell, you know, and the bee thing. I, I think there was, I think it may not have been a known thing that this was. Oh, I remember happen. it being a big shock. Yeah, that theater. he was going to die. And I remember it being sad, but I was too little to, to cry. Like, I don't think I understood. I couldn't connect things. You know, like, it was just too young to get it. So I didn't cry in a movie theater for a while. And I do remember watching this movie a lot. What? I'm sorry, was it Deep Impact? Was that the first time? <laughs> I don't know if that was the first time, but that was the most. <laughs> Ditto Armageddon. Oh, God. Oh, God. 
I remember owning this movie. I probably got it from like McDonald's or something. <laughs> like one of those VHS promotions. It's a tragic meal. <laughs> Sappy meal. Or like on stolen pay-per-view. I guess that's coming up a lot. This is the time frame <laughs> yeah. of stolen pay-per-view in my life. Um, I remember watching it a lot. I watched My Girl 2 a lot. Mm. These were definitely movies that I watched a lot growing up and I connected a lot to Veda. Like, it's not often that you get a movie where you are the same age as the main character, especially when you are a little girl. So I very much connected with Veda and that's probably why I liked the movie so much and wanted to keep watching it because I just felt like that could have been like my friend. Yeah, so what did you guys think of watching My Girl as an adult? I mean, the book was better. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I had seen this as an adult at some point, but it had definitely been a few years. What struck me really is that, like, I mean, we were talking about some titles that were similar, and, like, Stand By Me is one that's maybe closer than most, but there's... It just struck me how singular this movie is in that it is... I don't know. Is it for children? Like, it's rated PG. It doesn't have anything, like, super objectionable. It has, like, very mild, like, discussions of, like, sex. And obviously it has death in it, but not in a, like, way that's, like, horror or gore or anything. So it's, like, it's okay for kids to see if you're, like, mature enough to handle it. And it has, like, children characters are the focus, but it also has a lot of scenes with adult characters and is a relationship drama, dramedy. So it's it's this very strange hybrid of a movie that almost seems like it would be based on a book or something because I I was trying to figure out like what was the inspiration for this movie. I thought this was based on a, on a book, yeah. but it's not. Yeah, like it's not a pitchable movie, you know, in a lot of ways. And so, I mean, I, I assume it was just like a well-written script to that, you know, some producers, you know, saw and were like, wow, this is a really affecting movie. Let's make it, you know, and it was made out of you know, love for the material, because that sometimes happened in the past. (laughs) Strange notion. I mean, I'll talk a lot about specific things I liked. Overall, I enjoyed the movie still. I think I think it's a good movie. You know, it has some moments that feel a little bit... I think it's more the era than the movie itself, but that feel a little, like, kind of overwrought and, like, over-scored with the, the scores, like, a little bit too much at times, like, signifying what you're supposed to feel and that, like, this is a big emotional moment. But those things are very minor, I think, in compared to, like, a movie that's really well done. But, like, what strikes me is just that I can't really think of another movie that's exactly like this. If you were to say what's another movie like My Girl, either it's not as good or it's more for adults or it's more for kids. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't think of one that, like, really fits this to a T. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Like, especially the part where, like, this time around, rewatching it after so many years away from it, this doesn't feel like a kid's movie to me. It feels like an adult drama about blended families and about the issues that you run into when you're building a blended family. It spends a lot of the kind of emotional journey of the movie talking about Veda's mom, about Dan Aykroyd's widow, but we never get to see that person. It all exists in the absence of her. And really, like, Jamie Lee Curtis's role is the actual female lead of it. And especially this time, it was, like, a lot more apparent to me as an adult watching this. Like, really, how much of this movie is about that and about Anna Klumsky and Dan Aykroyd's character trying to navigate that experience of, like, what it means and what it feels like to start a new family, the feelings of jealousy and propriety that come up, especially in kids who have gone through like losing a parent. Yeah, I would almost say that 
the, like those co-leads in this movie are Anna Klumsky and Jamie Lee Curtis. I would totally agree with that. I would totally agree with that. And and I also think that like I'm sure I had seen My Girl 2 at some point, but especially like My Girl 2 makes that very explicitly apparent. Like that's that's very much the case of of like the two of those movies as kind of a whole story. Um I mean, I I there's almost nothing in this movie I can possibly object to. Like it's one of the least objectionable <laughs> movies I can imagine. Um, and I find a lot about it very charming. I do love the fact that they live in a funeral home and that Dan Aykroyd's character is like an undertaker and runs a funeral home. Like that's a very unorthodox character in any kind of movie, but especially a movie that like is okay for kids to watch. But that said, I was also not overly whelmed by the movie. <laughs> like I was not super entertained. Like you see every single plot twist coming. I mean, there aren't even really plot twists because everything is telegraphed so far ahead of time, not just in the music score, but also just like in the story moments, like they, they go fishing and Thomas J catches a fish and he throws it back and the fish instantly dies. And then the camera like lingers on the fish for like another 45 seconds as it's dead. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen to Macaulay Culkin's character. See, I didn't see it that way. I found it much more charming than it was entertaining. So to the question of, like, how it holds up, I think it holds up perfectly well. And to Chris's point, I do think that it's a very unique movie in a lot of ways that almost no other movies have tried to be in any way like this movie. But also, I don't know if I would, like, necessarily recommend that everyone, like, run and go out and see My Girl immediately because it's some hidden, secret, undiscovered gem. I really do feel, especially as far as period pieces go, Stand By Me just has so much more power to it and and depth and kind of shades of nuance. That said, I still have to say that Anna Klumsky and Macaulay Culkin's characters and their performances are really pretty astonishing, especially Anna Klumsky. Like, she's just such a phenomenal screen presence, literally from the first second of this movie. And I don't know if there's any other child actor who could have inhabited that character that well. She Go- was born jaundiced. <laughs> Going off what Seth said, I thought she gave one of the best child performances I've ever seen. Oh, by far. Um, she's such a screen presence. She's still doing stuff, which we'll talk about. Like, she's an adult act. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> she is an actress who is an adult in a movie that was not directed by children. <laughs> so- I liked this movie a lot. I saw it about a year ago, and that's when I was like, we got to do this on the podcast, because I was very shocked how much I liked it after mm. not seeing it for decades. But I thought it held up so well. I just loved it. I thought it was just perfect. It hit the tone right of comedy and drama and emotions and reality and friendship and like that time in your life. And you just feel so nostalgic for your first kiss and your friendships when you're young and summertime. Like feel like the tone just was so perfect. And I felt like this was just a really important movie because kids do deal with death. And this is a perfect movie that if you were a parent and your child, you know, a grandfather, a grandparent dies or or anyone dies, a pet dies, like that you can show them this movie if they're, you know, around the same age as Veda and 
and you know then you can have a discussion after about you know how you feel and i just felt like it was real it's really important for kids because there aren't any movies like this <laughs> that death is treated with real weight and i think the moment with the fish of thomas j is i felt like he was trying to protect her from death because she was so sensitive about it. But, I mean, eventually he dies. He can't protect her from from dealing with real death. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you're right. That's, like, what he's trying to do in that moment. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's what Dan Aykroyd is doing. When the line with her saying, Daddy, why is that coffin so small? Is it for a child? And he's like, of course not. It's just for short people. Like, there's so many instances where people are trying to shield reality from children. But mm-hmm. eventually children have to face reality. And that's why I just really, really appreciate this movie because I felt like it was dealt with in such a, um, a a genuine, like heartfelt way that didn't feel too cloying and didn't feel too like mommy's in heaven, you know. Yeah, and it and it's not it doesn't talk down to the kid characters in it at all or to the kids watching it. Yeah, and I I love the scene where. She's in her creative writing class over the summer and she starts the scene by like sharing her poem, which is about ice cream, (laughs) which is exactly (laughs) what like how old is she? Eleven. Like, of course, an 11 year old would be like, I love ice cream. Ice cream's great. I wrote a poem, too. Please. Ode to Ice Cream by Veda Saltenfuss. I like ice cream a whole lot. It tastes good when days are hot. On a cone or in a dish, this would be my only wish. Vanilla, chocolate, or rocky road, even with pie a la mode. That's all I got so far. I hear that, Veda. Flesh all a mesh or rocky road. It's about desire. But then the scene ends with her like, we want to know your, your deepest secrets and fears. And she, in, v- in VO, goes, I think I killed my mother. And these are real thoughts that kids have that they mm-hmm. feel like they can't share with people that they're ashamed by. And this movie shows young kids and parents like it's okay and you need to talk about your feelings and how you're feeling and and you can't just be like a happy kid all the time. Real things happen and you have to deal with them and confront them. I just really love this movie um, and I feel like it's important. So when my my daughter is old enough, I would love to show her this movie and I think that it would hold up. There's something really meta about it because in the movie, Dan Aykroyd is like protecting his daughter from death and basically saying children don't die. And, you know, like trying not to like talk about like what happened to her mom and something and that, you know, manifests and she ends up imagining something worse or like thinking that it's like her fault because he's not talking to her. But like this movie is aimed at children and is about death and is this very rare thing. It's kind of about that exact same thing. Like if you take your children to this movie, they're learning about death. They're learning that children can die. It's almost like having that conversation for you. Mm -hmm. And so there's something very interesting about that and that that this child character is being confronted with the same thing that like we were pretty much her age when we were watching it like we were being confronted with that also kind of for the first time it's it's very interesting yeah and it's not a meta framing that's like either separate or takes us out of the drama it's a framing that is central to the emotional drama of the whole movie Mm-hmm. I think it's very effective at that I also especially wanted to highlight like for me Jamie Lee Curtis was the MVP at this now First, we blot. Take a look. It looks real nice on you. Shelly, do you think I'm pretty? Yes, Beta, I think you're very pretty. You've got these great, big, sparkling eyes. Cutest little nose. 
an amazing mouth. Boys at school don't think I am. They'll come around. Close your eyes. I want to bring out the gorgeous color in them. Now, the first rule in applying eye makeup is you can never wear enough blue eyeshadow. Do you like putting makeup on people? Mm-hmm. I've been trying to get out to Hollywood for years to do makeup for all the movie stars. But I haven't gotten there yet. I would definitely hold off on that Hollywood thing. I wouldn't say she's the MVP because that for me is Anna Klumsky. Well, yeah. I mean, as far as adult human beings go. <laughs> I thought Dan Aykroyd was outacted by Anna Klumsky like by like oh, a million. Easily. Like I didn't think he was very good in this I didn't at all, think he actually. was I didn't think he was very good. I love Dan Aykroyd. I love seeing him, but the chops on that kid just she did laps around her dad. Well, he was like perfectly cast as a clueless schlub. Like that too. His performance doesn't like stick out to me, but like it got the job done cuz he supposed to be kind of just like a goof he got the job done but anna klumsky like excelled (laughs) and so that's why it stood out that he was just like a dad and she was just like out acting him by like miles even even mccoy culkin i thought did a great job like i was so impressed by him too yeah he's always and and again I, i think his performance in home alone is fantastic and like there's a reason he became a gigantic breakout star yeah and it's funny because like in home alone he plays a certain tone, which is like mm-hmm. goofy, silly, you know, over the top. And this, he's very understated. It's and really, it's a really subtle performance. Yeah. There's a lot of just like stares and looks and like yeah. halting, halting glances, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was really struck also by how unmacaulay he was because, like, in every pretty much every other movie, he was the star of the movie and like was called upon to do the charisma that he did really well yes. at that time. In this movie, like, Veda is the Thomas J. She's the one who has, like, voiceover moments and is kind of, like, sarcastic and, like, wise beyond her years and sort of taking on adults. So it's, like, it is interesting to see him kind of easily move into this other role and not feel like he's trying to, like, steal scenes from her, which I would imagine, like, when you're the star of Home Alone, is hard to be, like, oh, now you are going to be, like, sitting over here quietly it would ruin the character if he were doing anything kind of like flashy or home alone esque. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not who he is. But I'm I'm in a way surprised that he was able to show that restraint. I like there are moments in this movie where the child performances could have maybe used a few more takes just to make them feel more natural. Cause like I feel like I can sometimes sense that like the kids like they're saying jokes that are funny to adults, but that kids wouldn't get. I think partially it's the script and like, you know, the kid doesn't quite get what they're saying. So maybe they just needed to be like coached through the scene a little bit more. Especially some of the other child actors, like the non-Klumsky, non-Culkin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there is a couple of moments. Veda, like she has a few lines where it stretches credibility that an 11 year old would say things That's like true. that that are meant to be like political things. You know, I, I can't remember exactly <laughs> what it is, but there like, are a lot of lines about Nixon in these movies. <laughs> Okay. A lot of Nixon. Can I just jump to the end of this movie where I have very few notes, but one of my notes is the last line of dialogue of this movie goes with like, things are a lot better now. My dad's going to marry this girl. Judy's in my homeroom and the Republican Party is going to reelect Richard Nixon. The end. Yeah. 
that happened. The credits started rolling, and I was like, "Wait, wait a minute! Did I miss a line? Like, was there another line after that?" It's like, "But those friendships, uh, I'll never forget." Thomas, J-. like, I just thought there was something else, and then I rewound, and I was like, "Nixon is the last line." The last movie. line of the movie is the Republican Party just renominated Mr. Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris's face right now is just pondering. Yeah, it's it's a where did we come from? How did we get here? And where are we going now? Okay, so <laughs> this is 1972. There are a couple of lines that like hint at like the politics of the period or there's a character in the writing class who's like very much a hippie. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so funny. it's like conscious of something and I, I don't think it's quite clear but like the end of this movie is like sounds like it would be for like a full-on like satire you know i'm just like why would veda even say that like i know like she obviously she was 11 she wouldn't know what's going on but like is harry like a republican like where would yeah, she never get got anything he never says anything rep- like republican-y or nixon-y right or like, political at all or political at all at like all. it was so it was random. okay so this was this was one of the notes i had about this movie It feels similar to me to some other period piece type dramas like Remember the Titans? It's a period piece kind of only for the sake of setting it in a period in the very recent past. But this movie, the way it does it, comes off very Norman Rockwell-ish. And I don't think that's unsuccessful. Like, I think it does it very successfully. And I think the fact that they're telling a story about a blended family is the type of story and the type of family model that wouldn't have existed in, like, the Norman Rockwell 1950s. But still, I think ultimately the My Girl Saga is very much a kind of conservative story about the creation and preservation of like the nuclear family and the importance of like everyone has to have a mommy and a daddy. I don't think it's like a right wing movie. It's not like preaching that as like a polemic, but it kind of felt to me very consciously of the morality of kind of the 50s and 60s in that way. Yeah, I have more to say on that, especially when we talk about My Girl 2 a little bit. But um, <laughs> for this movie, Jamie Lee Curtis at least seems like she would probably be more of a like left-winger. And in general, their family's so kooky that it just seems they're more like bohemian. Yes. Which is why it didn't make sense that like Richard Nixon would get a shout-out. Like, And then the teacher also has... Nixon in the classroom, That's which right. is like, okay, it's like an elementary well, school was, classroom. He was the president right. at the so, time, so that makes sense to me. It makes sense, but it almost, almost then implies that like the teacher is a Nixon fan, too, when the teacher seems like he would maybe be more, also more of a, like, democratic, like, He's like an art artistic kind of guy. So it's just like, either don't have it or <laughs> don't put that as the last line of your movie unless you're going to like make it clear what that is. It just like really threw me because like what she's saying in the end of the movie is like things are better. And she lists two things that genuinely are better. She has a good friend and she's happy with her new stepmom. And then there's this like menacing note because we, kn- we know that he's going to resign because he would be impeached, you know, in a, in a couple of years. So yeah, it it's like a threat. <laughs> yeah. So it's like like she already went through something. Thing. It's not like this, like, she's had this period of innocence and now something serious is going to happen. Like, it just feels really off. I was like, is My Girl 2 going to start at the Watergate Hotel? <laughs> um, and I mean, obviously, none of the hosts of this podcast were alive during the time. But Nixon's corruption and his venality were very readily apparent at the time. They were. That did not come out of nowhere. Yeah, Watergate had already happened at this yeah. point. It just it was that he wasn't... He had not resigned yet. It's literally just the last line because I don't care that there's a re-elect Nixon poster. Okay, that's setting the stage for where we are. And the Nixon picture in the classroom is like, okay, he was the president. 
But the last line was like, why is that the last line of this movie? Well, yeah, and I wouldn't have mentioned the thing in the classroom except for that yeah. like, is then, like, again, the end of this movie. Like, that's what you leave us with. Yeah, And so it makes me, like, line. look back and say, well, what else was here? And, and I do think that, if anything, that's also a testament to how well the, the rest of the movie does the period piece of it all. Throughout all the rest of the movie, those touches don't really aim to, like, place us in a particular year or in a particular, like, historical moment. It's just more like the feel of this place, the atmosphere and the tone. Whereas, like, that last line just really takes you out of it. It's like that 70s, it feels like it's that 70s show all of a sudden. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, I agree with you about the period piece of it all, which is, I think it was really well done, beautifully done, very subtle. It felt very real. Like, it felt like you were actually there. Like, there are so many of these kinds of movies where it feels like cosplay. Yes. And in Mm -hmm. this movie, yeah, like, what Veda's wearing never really feels like very period, or Thomas J. And Shelly, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, does look very 70s, but she's a makeup artist. She would be wearing, like, the hot fashions of the Mm -hmm. day. So it it's like done in a way that makes sense where like not every man is wearing like a leisure suit and not everyone is wearing bell bottoms but it's occasionally like someone's wearing something and you're like oh yeah and it's the suburbs the it's not the big city yeah mm-hmm. so I, I thought that that was really well done at putting you in a time and place but not in a way that feels like overwhelming because like that's not what life is like you're not like wow like look outside it's 2021 like look how 2021 <laughs> everything is <laughs> like everything i see is from this year I want to talk about another fashion thing at the end. Veda never wears a dress until the very end when she goes to the poetry class and then gets on her bike and is joined by her female friend, her new Thomas J replacement, Judy. Judy. Thomas Jane. Judy J. I found that interesting. And I wonder what you think. Is it because now she is a woman because she's gone through this traumatic thing and she's learned so she's like older and she's more of a woman? Is it that she's just kind of replicating whoever she's with? Like, oh, Thomas J is my guy friend. I'm just going to wear guy clothes. That really rubbed me the wrong way this time, too. And I'm really with this movie for a long time. And then in the end, I mean, there's the Nixon line, you know, we've talked about (laughs) that. It was that plus what you just said, which is that she now has a female friend. She she was a tomboy before. She was always wearing, like, jeans and sweatshirts. Like, she looked very tomboy. And it felt very herself, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, she was being very herself. This Judy girl, there was a couple scenes earlier on where she seems, like, nicer than the other girls. And there's, like, a hint that like this girl you know wants to be friends with her or something but like you don't really get the development of that very much i think she comes and says like oh i'm sorry about thomas J." well and earlier on there's a scene of kind of the neighborhood girls bullying Mm -hmm. and that girl who becomes her friend later on is kind of straggling the last uh, uh, behind the group of bullies she doesn't really participate in the bullying she's kind of like an onlooker and you like see guilt on her face. You see that she kind of regrets. So being she doesn't part come out group. of nowhere. Not entirely, but she's also not really a character in the no, movie. No, she's not. Yeah, so you don't see this friendship actually develop or really get a sense like that this yeah. is a good friend for her. But like, okay, give it the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she is. But like, it is. It is weird to me that, like, it, the movie basically seems to be saying that, like, because Veda's arc is that she was, like, repressed and kind of in denial about death. Like, she wasn't confronting reality. She was kind of stuck. And because, she, like, she was raised by a man and didn't have a female, like, influence, like, she didn't dress like a girl. She didn't know about her period or wear makeup. Like, she needed this kind of female influence to become, like, yeah, more of a woman. And that's, like, the arc of the character. Is it's like a coming-of-age story. She's becoming a woman or at least, like, a teen girl. Hey, Beta, what's the matter? 
Where's Daddy? Well, he just left. What's wrong? I'm hemorrhaging. What do you mean you're hemorrhaging? I don't want, and I don't need your help, but Ada, I need to move. Did this happen in the bathroom? How old are you? I'm 11 and a half. It's okay. Come on upstairs. We have to have a little talk. My mommy and daddy did that. But it is weird, like, the film seems to be saying, like, like we've killed her childhood friend, and she's confronted death, and now she can be, like, a pretty girl in dresses and hang out with girls and be, like, a girly girl. And like it, something was wrong with her before, yeah, and now it's yeah. fixed. Yeah, and it, it, it did kind of disconcert me that the movie just ended on this, and, like, even, because, like, then the, the music kicks in, and it's My Girl, and that's the title of the movie, which I don't really feel like fits the movie very well. Maybe a little better than I Am Woman. <laughs> Who's My... That's what I'm wondering. Because <laughs> it's that would you would think it would either well it'd be like Dan Aykroyd, but like he's the fourth main character of this movie. Like he doesn't seem like he should have some. Uh, see, to me, it felt like my girl was referring to Thomas J's vision of Veda and like how he saw Veda. But I don't know that we get like enough she was of my like because I, I mean, I, like he kind of crushes on her when they kiss, but I don't really feel like he. Oh, he crushes. They they talk about her like if they're not married when they're like in their thirties or whatever, they're gonna. He had a deep, deep crush. He had on a her. crush on her because he's like she was talking about the ring that her dad gave Shelly, and that's why he goes back to the bees to get the mood ring because he's got like that in his mind. Yeah, I mean, he definitely he he's got a big crush on her. Believe me. Okay. <laughs> Did you write the novelization? For this? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> okay, he has a crush on her, but they're you know they're kids. I feel like they could also get over this like tomorrow, yeah, sure. and be friends again. I agree with you, especially because I also think like the movie after the death happens, like with the funeral and everything. That's when for me it started taking a much firmer tone of Norman Rockwellism. Of like he start the preacher started talking about Jesus, and like they start talking about like oh, do you think they're up in heaven watching you? All the time. I felt like the movie did a surprisingly, uniquely good job for a period piece, especially not kind of invoking religiosity in the grand old American tradition. The thing about the dress, to me, that kind of fits in exactly at the point in the movie where it felt like it needed to pour on tradition and not just kind of like that really well done period drama. You can imagine like a version of the story where it's kind of like the opposite arc where she's like in a family and like too restricted and then in the end she she gets to like be herself and like dress as a tomboy and be you know like express mm-hmm. herself that way like that would have been a more like a typical story especially like in the 90s to like and for something said in the 70s it would make more sense if she was like restricted and then was like oh it's cool i can now play sports and be whoever i want to be so it, it was just an interesting like kind of backwards arc that yeah it did kind of like rub me the wrong way did you feel like once thomas J went back to the bees and his glasses fall like up until the end did that feel like fast to you like it felt really fast to me where i i wanted more beats of like veda like processing this and realizing what this means because it felt like glasses fall police come to the house to tell her dad the dad tells her she runs off she goes to the doctor then it's the funeral then she cries at the funeral then tells the teacher i love you yeah the whole thing felt really fast really feels like it rushes the whole third act yeah Yeah, it it rushed the, the third acts that's like that's the big deal is her processing what that means to lose a friend and surely that's connected to her losing her mom like i just felt like there needed to be another scene there 
Yeah, the, I think there's too many scenes of Veda and Thomas J like doing cutesy romance things where it's like it hits the same beat a lot. Where it's yes. like he obviously likes her. She's kind of prickly with him and like she obviously cares about him but can be like kind of mean to him. It hits that beat a lot that like I think like the plot feels a little stagnant. Same thing a little bit with her and Shelly. Like I feel like when she starts being mad about Shelly, I feel like that goes on for too long. Yeah. And I would have rather, and it seems to kind of of like resolve that for like it might have been better to have Thomas J die sooner and still have to resolve some more stuff with Shelley afterwards because yeah. there's just a, a period of the movie where it kind of just feels like she's mad at Shelley and then she does something cute with Thomas J and then she's mad at Shelley and like it's just kind of repetitive. Yeah, I totally agree with both parts of that, where like I felt like if they were more efficient about both of those kind of B-plots of it, <laughs> B-plots, then <laughs> it could have spent a lot more time and done a lot more with the emotional aftermath for Veda. I think that was kind of one of the only ways the movie felt like it kind of shortchanged her character. Because I, I agree with you, Becky. It, I think it does rush through those third act beats, especially for her character. Did you guys cry at the funeral scene? Not this time. I think no. I might have at some point. It is sad. It's really sad. He can't see without his glasses. I can relate to that. Because <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't, I'm blind without my glasses, yeah. guys. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even take bees for me to be blind. <laughs> it's a, it's a great, I mean, that's the climax of the movie is her, just her crying at the casket. It's a great acting scene. Jesus said, let the children come to Do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he he laid his hands on their heads before he left that place. Let us pray in silence. One go tree climbing Thomas J. His face hurts. And where is his glasses? He can't see without his glasses. Put his glasses on. Put on his glasses. Who's going to be an acrobat? He's gone, sweetheart. He's gone. Theta, wait! Theta! That's also a really great acting moment, too. Yeah, I really agree. It was very emotionally touching. I did not cry, because I'm now an automaton without feelings. (laughs) But, like, now, the saddest part for me is, like, when you see Mrs. Senate... Um, and it's the mood ring and it's like I really want to give Mrs. Senate a hug because I just feel bad for that woman like she doesn't get very much to do in this movie I wrote that down but I was also like especially after it was done I was like I'm kind of glad they didn't really spend any time with his parents it kind of felt like he was a latchkey kid anyway but also it was like there's no way that Thomas J's parents are going to be anywhere near as interesting as the Sultan Fuss's there's a nice moment though that Veda goes by his house to, to pick him up and the mom is like, oh, you got a milk mustache and she's doing, like, mom things with him. There is. And, and I, that and really touched really, me. I liked that moment, too. I thought it was touching. I agree with that. And they go, they they linger on her a little as she watches them go away. I'm like, uh-oh. Like, <laughs> I, I do think this movie is actually pretty good. I don't... Maybe Seth doesn't agree because he kind of hinted that he didn't. I don't think this movie telegraphs it too much. I didn't think so, either. Oh, I, just that fish moment was funny to me. But, no. The entire rest of it, I think, actually does a surprisingly nuanced job of setting that up. I didn't remember at all that you actually saw him going to get the bees and the bees attacking. I In my memory, like, I was even, like, gonna write this as a note because I was pretty sure of it. I was like, oh, and you never, like, see... Like, it happens off screen and then it doesn't happen off screen. It's 
there's like him waving his yeah, hands around. But his like head. at that point, you know, like that's bad news. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I had remembered it being much more subtle. So I guess that's a testament to the movie being fairly subtle. It is interesting that like this kind of falls in line with like the Sandlot, I guess, as like nostalgic movies for kids that we have no sense of the nostalgia for. You know, like I guess it's for like parents, you know, because like they can enjoy the soundtrack because like this movie has a great soundtrack. uh, Both of these do. Not just the soundtrack. It's you being like, oh, I was there. Like, I remember that. Like when I watch shows about the year 2000, (laughs) like I can put myself there you know what i mean like because i was like oh what was i doing in the year 2000 yeah i was watching the conan o'brien segment in the year 2000 yeah, there you go <laughs> well it's like you it creates this nostalgia for you for like this and like i guess as we were like trying to compare this to something i guess the wonder years is a good that yeah. was i wrote that down yeah because that also created like a nostalgia for i guess around the same time like 60s and yeah that was much more about the 60s but yeah yeah so it like obviously didn't live through them but i am nostalgic for them because of (laughs) the nostalgic like entertainment that i saw for all this stuff yeah and and again it's like i i thought if anything it was kind of a plus for me the the way that it felt wonder years ish in that yes there is a time period that's specified but it's more just you know, it kind of feels like, oh, this is the recent past. And and I do agree that it's also a thing that, like, our boomer parents got into, even though they weren't, like, children children during the 60s. Like, they were mostly, like, adults by that time. But yeah, I think especially the soundtrack does a very good job of hitting the nostalgia buttons. Another thing that, like, really hit me this time, like, I think my favorite scenes are the scenes with her in the classroom with the teacher and the, like, adults. Mm -hmm. Just because, I mean, this whole movie, I think, is about that of, like, a child entering an adult world and Mm -hmm. being a part of a world you are slowly coming to understand, but there's a lot of things about it you don't understand. And, like, for her, it's really extreme because it's death. Like, most children do not grow up (laughs) surrounded by dead bodies. But, like, this movie makes it explicit that she's, like, having to confront death, literally, you know, and, and and accept that. But for me, what it captured in those scenes in the classroom was just, like, that sense of, like, being around adults and you're, like, a smart kid and you're, like, a writer. And I had this experience a lot, too, where it's, like, in some ways, like, I can, like talk like an adult and I'm intelligent for my age but you're always a little bit at a disadvantage because you just don't have that experience and there's like things that go over your head and so I don't think there's very many movies that capture that feeling of just being like I'm in some ways a lot like an adult and in other ways still feel like a child in that weird like awkward moment weeping willow with your tears running down why do you always weep and frown is it because he left you one day Is it because he could not stay? On your branches he would swing. Do you long for the happiness that they would bring? He found shelter in your shade. He thought his laughter would never fade. Weeping willow, stop your tears. There is something to calm your fears. You think death has ripped you forever apart. Yeah, I found that aspect super relatable. Um, And I was like one of those kids who would actively try to hang around adults because I just usually found them more thoughtful and interesting than kids. Mm -hmm. I can't really think of other movies that did as good a job of placing a smart kid character in that situation without ever talking down to them. And it goes to great efforts not to do that. 
I did especially like Griffin Dunn's character, that that English teacher, because he never gives Veda short shrift, even with her silly like ice cream poem or whatever. And what he appeals to her to do in like you know write another poem, but like talk about what you're actually feeling is not child advice. It's not childish or patronizing advice at all. It, it is also the exact advice that makes you eventually become a decent poet or writer of any sort. And I loved the way that it really didn't talk down to her intelligence, even where it recognizes where her actual life experience has kind of not fully prepared her for even young adulthood, much less actual adulthood. Yeah, that's another almost like meta thing is that the movie isn't talking down to kids as in the same way that like the characters in the movie aren't talking down to her. Yeah, and I thought he was really well cast as like, he's not like hot, but he's like the kind of person like that you can imagine like a kid would think is hot, like he's like safe hot. Absolutely. I, I was going to ask, would you bang? Would you bang? Hot for safe teacher? <laughs> Hot for safe teacher. <laughs> There's not a lot of options in this movie, so I guess so. Gramu, I don't know. I just, I, I like Gramu. <laughs> I like Gramu's name more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. She, she adds a little dose of comedy. I just, I want to bring up the, the first kiss scene because it's so sweet. Why do you think people want to get married? Want to get older, you just have to. I'm going to marry Mr. Bixler. We can't marry a teacher. It's against the law. It is not. Yes, it is, because then he'll give you all A's and it won't be fair. Not true. Have you ever kissed anyone? Like they do on TV? Mm-hmm. No. Maybe we should, just to see what's the big deal. But I don't know how. Here, practice on your own like this. Like this? Mm -hmm. Okay, enough practice. Close your eyes. Then I won't be able to see anything. Just do it. Okay, okay. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, two and a half, three. Say something, it's too quiet. Um, um, just hurry. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And it's so funny at the end when she's like, they kiss. I'm just seeing like Macaulay Culkin's like face, his little shocked face. And she's like, say something, it's too quiet. And then he just starts reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. allegiance. That was very cute. It's so cute. It's very cute. It's so like wholesome. Yeah, it's really cute. Like, this girl has anxiety. <laughs> uh, same. Uh, <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> she has a chicken bone stuck in her throat. That's what's wrong. Which I did not understand when I, like, read the book. And, like, because I think it's, like, it's first person. So mm-hmm. she says, I have a chicken bone stuck in my throat. And I, like, took it literally. And I thought she really did. And I was very, I did not get the hypochondria thing. Like, mm. I, I was very concerned for her. And, oh, as a kid, I had no <laughs> idea about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did not know what a prostate was either. So there, there's like things <laughs> in this. True. I'm hemorrhaging. Yeah. I'm yeah. hemorrhaging. 
Yeah, I was surprisingly tickled by that as well. But like, did more attention need to be paid to like her mental health? Like, I don't know. Is that the nineties? Is that the seventies? They make it seem as though because she's like everything's better. That chicken bone is no longer in my throat. Yeah. So like that was her anxiety, and she was able to by the end of it, her arc is she was able to control her anxiety because she was able to express herself. Yeah, it, to me, if anything, it actually kind of remi- reminded me of Harold and Maude. Hmm. Uh, that was so clearly such a daily part of her life that everyone around her was used to that. Like, even her doctors were used to it. And I kind of I kind of liked that. Like, I liked What's that? The, anxiety? To her hypochondria. Oh, okay. yeah. oh, in Harold and Maude, Harold constantly fakes suicides. Oh, okay. Um, Because he's so bored at home and he's like so bored of his like fuddy-duddy mother. That's how he acts out. Like that's how he gets his yayas out basically. And this kind of her hypochondria really reminded me of that in a way that it's like, well, yeah, if this was the first time you were seeing it, that would be really dark and scary and you'd be freaked the fuck out. But if it's like the 500th time they've done it, you'd be pretty blasé about the whole thing. Yeah, Harold and Maude is actually a really good comparison for this movie that I hadn't thought of. Like there's something about the morbidity of that, but like funny morbidity and like kind of lighthearted yeah i really think this is well set in like the funeral parlor and that feels like such a lived-in thing that these people would be kind of cavalier about death and then you have jamie lee curtis coming in and like her early like reactions are like really funny like to like not knowing that this job as a makeup artist is going to be on dead people and then like making mistakes and like making them too sexy like (laughs) For their like funerals. The, the pastor's wife. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to turn this down. But it all feels like very real and very, like, I would be surprised if the writer didn't have some kind of experience with this or something. Yeah, that, it, that felt very organic. I really appreciated the tone of this movie and the way that it kind of, it's always a little bit too adult for kids, but not in a way that's actually like going to offend you or like startle you. It, it's talking up to you like the same way, you know, like it's just yeah. like, it, it makes you as a child, I think, aspire to like get the joke a little bit more but like not in a way where it really feels like it's not for you so my girl 2 the sequel was released three years later in 1994 it starred the exact same cast as the first one except uh with jtt wannabe austin o'brien <laughs> um how much do you think this movie earned at the box office two times what my girl did no that's a joke uh significantly less than the first one I'm going to say a number, and the number I'm going to say is $50 million. $28 million. Ooh! It went, like, way, Underperformed. Yeah. I mean, how much did it cost, though? Cause, like, I don't know, but the first one made 120 I know, but I'm just saying it's, like, now if a movie of this scale made $28 million, it'd be, like, America's <laughs> <Miracle>. Bonanza. <laughs> <laughs> like, Nomadland probably did not make $28 million. That's true. <laughs> well, yeah. Different times. Bezos spent more on his space flight than Nomadland made. <laughs> yeah. What did you guys think of My Girl 2? Judy, we hardly knew you. <laughs> I think it's funny that, like, My Girl 1 ends with this, like, big, like, now I'm friends with Judy. And then, like, Judy is, like, no part of this movie, really. <laughs> like, she, she's in there and she's basically, like, like mean girl, kind of, again. Is she a mean girl or is she just kind of scared of... She's like Veda was in the first one where she's... I remember her walking in and Veda's, like, setting up for a funeral because she's okay with death Well, she, now. like, steals the guy that Veda likes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it, it's like, I feel like Veda's too unconventional for her. True. Yeah. So it's just like, it's like, never mind. Like, <laughs> and Nixon is no longer president. So all of the things that were so good about the ending of the first one are not true anymore. 
Yeah, I um I watched this movie a lot growing up. I think I probably switched from My Girl to My Girl 2 a lot, just back and forth. Um, and I think that I always had a thing with this movie because I always liked California. And she goes to California. And she goes to the Tar Pits. She goes to Hollywood. Like, I loved that part of it <laughs> growing up. That's why I live here now. This and the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> um what a what a pair of inspirational films i know watching it now it kind of just felt like let's make a sequel to this hit it's not as good <laughs> it felt like this was too much for a movie if this if my girl was a tv show like this should be like a couple of episodes of the of the full run of veda's life and times like dedicating this much time to the story felt like i didn't care for two hours I saw this movie in theaters because I was a, you know, a My Girl fan of, of some form. Um, I don't know if I'd seen it. I, I've only seen it a handful of times. So it wasn't it wasn't like you you were watching it. And so, this one I had only seen the one time. I remembered the La Brea Tar Pits very vividly mm-hmm. and the scene with the mood ring. I that was very of, effective. I still think of My Girl too when I think of the La Brea mm-hmm. Tar Pits. Other than that, I did not remember the plot of this movie i knew austin o'brien was in it and he's obviously on the poster that was it i knew that she went to california but i didn't remember that it was about her mom i didn't really remember anything specific this is not a sequel to my girl (laughs) in many ways it spits on the grave of thomas (laughs) J. That was a deleted scene. That's only in the novelization, Chris. (laughs) I will bet you, and I could not find any information on the writing of either of these movies, unfortunately. I would bet you $100 that this screenplay was not a My Girl sequel, and they just Mm -hmm. changed it to be one. Absolutely. I think she just got, like, a characters by credit, the screenwriter. Yeah. So they didn't even hire her. It was a different writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they do that sometimes. Like, the Ocean's Mm -hmm. Eleven, the first sequel, was not originally an Ocean's Eleven movie. And they're like, oh, this would work as the sequel. I don't know why they do it, because it's not that hard to just, like, write a new movie. Or apparently, I don't know, they think it is. I'm sure there are examples where it did work. I know that there are. But, like, it often does not work, because you can't just shoehorn other characters into the plot of a first movie. And this drives me bananas, because, like, this is not Veda. Like, the character is not the same person. She's a very different person it's in this movie. It's not at all the same. And, like, the this kind of, the worldview of this movie is not at all the same, and the tone of this movie right. is not at all the same. And it drives me insane, because I don't think this is a bad movie movie. I think it would be a perfectly fine movie if you just made this uh, with, you know, even Anna Klumski and just call the character a different person. My other girl. <laughs> Another. Another girl. My cute summer. Yeah. With JTT-ish. It's <laughs> like, individually, it's like sort of a fun movie, but like, the first one was so realistic and lived in and contained to this very small like world of like when you're a kid it's like your house and your friend's house and the tree that you like to hang out at and school that's your world and that's what that is and it feels very like childhood and then this is like not doing that for like a teenager this is an adventure movie and like with a quest it's like a national treasure movie like she has to hunt down clues but like a really low stakes quest yeah that's the thing Becky like I I did not enjoy this movie. And also, uh, not only did I think it felt like episodes of a TV show, to me it felt like 
the like third or fourth season of a TV show where clearly the whole writer's room has run out of every single story that they brought into their writing gig there. No one there has any idea what the fuck to do to wrap this show up. The showrunner like abandoned it two years ago <laughs> to go get coked out and have a movie career. And they're just like, what can we do now? I know, send them to California. It, it feels so, it felt so gimmicky. I yeah I I know that I saw this when it came out. I don't remember if I saw it in the theater, even though I was definitely a my girl guy. But <laughs> I, I remembered the La Brea Tar Pits. It was like the first time that I remembered like hearing about the La Brea Tar Pits, and was like, wow, this sounds like a really dangerous place. I don't know why they let people go here. <laughs> um, but but yeah, nothing about this felt like a my girl story. Especially in terms of Veda, who, again, to me, was like the strongest thing, uh, the most distinct thing about a first movie that that overall was very relatively well done in my mind. Like, it just became like a, a bickering, I'm bickering with the boy I'm going to end up liking movie, yeah. like not subtle. You're Veda, right? How did you know my name? Your Uncle Phil told me. Where is he? He was supposed to meet me. Hey, relax. Do you think I kidnapped him or something? This is California. Anything's possible. Well, if I was looking for a victim, I definitely wouldn't pick your Uncle Phil, who outweighs me by about 150 pounds. Besides, who would I ask for a ransom? You. Are you suffering from a chemical imbalance, or is it just an attitude problem? My only problem is that your Uncle Phil's giving me five bucks to pick you up, but I don't get paid till delivery. Gee, that is a problem. To show your baggage claim check to security personnel. Put that down. I'll, I'll call the police. Thank you. What are you going to do? Tell them that a polite person helped carry your bag? I think you're very polite. Yeah, well, I don't think you're very grateful. A lot of people in your position would say thank you. And talk about, like, hitting the same fucking note over and over again. Yeah. Every one of Austin O'Brien's lines is, like, smirkerific. He's just like... <laughs> I know, wah, I wah, really... Wah. I wanted to punch that child. I really hated <laughs> I wanted his to character. hit that boy in the face. I hated his character, but also... How old is... They're supposed to be 13, like, both of them? Because yeah. they pose him and have him have this, like, heartthrob look like he's 25. Yeah. Like, it's, like, inappropriate. Especially when they're in a classroom... And he's, like, sitting among actual age-appropriate children. And you're like, this, like, 18-and-a-half-year-old kid is in there. What's going on? They have, like, winds blowing through his hair in Always. the airport. Oh, the airport? Always. He's got this, like, pose that it's, like, like it's fucking Barbarino from Mulkenbach Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> and they're about to be cousins, so it becomes yeah, a little bit weird. <laughs> and, like, so... And they have a conversation about how it's legally okay because they're not blood relatives. It was weird. <laughs> Which is fine. Like, that happens, whatever. Like, you could have a crush on your cousin and it's not like, you know, they are they kiss, whatever. And I don't, I don't really mind that, because I, I think they did a good job enough of, like, making him, like, dreamy to someone who's, like, that age. It's weird kind of now, at watching it as sure. an adult. Because, like, like, I shouldn't be looking at this child like that. But, like... <laughs> For the for like I could see like you know if it's it's aimed at kids so making him look like dreamy is fine but it just is weird like what bothers me is that she's such a goody goody in this movie I'm like who is this because like in she's rebellious in the first movie like that's her whole right. character is she's like a smart Alec who like says inappropriate things 
and it, like says like things that are way too adult for her. In this one, like it feels like the script was like she's the conservative girl from a small town who yes. goes to hippy dippy Los Angeles. Fish out of water. And like Austin O'Brien is like the hippie one. Like there's a, like they give him all these like very hippie lines, like you know, like piercing your ears is barbaric, and he fights with a Republican cop at one point <laughs> where they're they're like having an <laughs> argument, and sh- and then Veda is so, she's so offended that her mother was kicked out of school for smoking and that she was married before and it's just like this is not the right character like she's she's a girl who would also get kicked out of school for smoking at some point wouldn't it be more interesting to stay in her town and the new coming of age thing is she has a new baby in the house anything else with like a relatable coming of age thing with like going on her first date in her own town. <laughs> That's the thing. You know? Before I sat down to watch My Girl 2, I had forgotten entirely what the plot was. And I thought it was going to be that. I thought it was going to be Jamie Lee Curtis has her baby. Uh, Veda's jealous about it. They have to, like, navigate that. You know, like, that's what I was going in expecting. And that would have been so much better. Yeah, and she could also have some unresolved things with her mom. She could be seeing Shelly with the baby and being like, I've never had that. And there could be more things to dive into her psyche. Grounded in actual characters. Yeah. And and not just in plot stuff. And this just felt like, let's go to California. Look at these sights. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, she's had a lot of trauma in her life for a young girl. So, like, what would it be like if this girl started dating and, like, you know, guys are pressuring her or, you know, whatever. Or she had a near-death experience, like, on a date or something. Like, Yeah, like, I mean, you could do anything except for what they did in my (laughs) girl's I also have a big problem because, like, and I feel like this is why this script, like, existed before. Like, in the first one, you never got any sense that, like, her mom was, like, an actress in L.A. that, like, had this, like, wild bohemian life. Like, it felt like it was, like, they were, like, a normal small town family. Like, her mom probably came from somewhere around there. Like, I don't even know. Like, this is makes her, like, Catherine Hepburn or something like that. Like, you know, where she's, like, this, like, wild, free spirit woman. And it just, like, it doesn't make any sense with, like, how did she end up with an undertaker in Right, that's the thing. It's, like, the way that they frame her as, like, a wild starlet, then it makes absolutely no sense why she ever would have ended up with Mr. Saltonfuss. And he's like, I barely knew your mom. She came into town on an acting thing. Uh, we, I, I proposed on our second date. We were married two weeks later. Then you came. Then she got pregnant. You came along, and she died. And I was like, I don't think I like the idea that you didn't know her mom. <laughs> yeah, and that because that's also not what his character is like. He no. never would have done that. He no. was traumatized. Like, that's why he was so repressed in the first one, as he was like grieving over like his wife, and it hadn't. He didn't date anyone else for. 11 years like yeah. and he had to right. like that was his arc is he had to get over it with Shelly so it is very like <laughs> bizarre and then my girl boo now we pee on the grave of my girl too even beyond that like why is everyone her mom knew like a hundred years old the, the people she went to college with are like very old <laughs> and like there's a weird foreign guy like i didn't even really get like was he a college student with them or a professor I don't know. but like ben stein went to <laughs> she went to school with ben stein <laughs> to be honest i fast forwarded through that part because ben stein is a republican asshole and i don't like seeing his face or hearing his voice well you didn't miss much with that scene but it was just like there's and then there's one like young woman and i'm just like how old is she supposed to be? <laughs> that's right there's that one woman who was like a, f- a friend and college friend of her mom's 
and they're like 30 years younger than every other person Veda visits in LA. Like it's the so weird. Older guy, like the the first husband was like way older. Like it's just It was dumb. It's 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 not the canon as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> not canon, not canon. And then like I'm pretty sure that Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis were just like no, like give us as few scenes as possible. <laughs> they didn't want to do this movie. But then like the romance with the uncle takes up a lot of time and there's like a guy oh who keeps like romancing it her. It takes so long. It doesn't make any sense. Like a guy in a like Porsche or you know some kind it of. It was fancy awkward car. to watch in a twenty twenty one lens. Yeah. <laughs> of this guy that won't stop harassing her. But that was no less weird through a twenty twenty one lens than her uncle, who like lives with this woman, lays claim to her like verbally on a constant basis, but shows no love or affection or respect or esteem for her at all. Yeah. It was really. It was weird. But it's, like, 1974, and, like, this movie seems very square. It's like, what? These people are living together and not married? Right. And, like, they're, they're Veda seems kind of shocked by that. They're living mm-hmm. in sin. And then, like, Austin O'Brien is such a hippie, but then the mom is, like, very, like, normal. But, like, they own a Hungarian car, <laughs> uh, like, auto body shop. Like... <laughs> Like, she does not seem like an auto mechanic to me. <laughs> no, uh, no. No. Or Hungarian. <laughs> like, it's just, it, it's the weirdest detail in a, like, very otherwise kind of just, like, square movie that, like, why do they own a Hungarian auto <laughs> shop? Like, there's no reason for they're that. They're part of the auto Hungarian empire. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, don't boo me. that was really good. Boo, boo my girl, too. <laughs> don't boo my one historical pun. That was pretty good, actually. <laughs> Just really used to booing you. <laughs> it would have made so much more sense. Like, the Uncle Phil character in the first movie is, like, funny because he's, like, this kind of, like, swinging bachelor guy. So why don't you have her go out there and, like, stay with him? And he's, like, living single and, like, dating yes. 70s women. And she, like, sees things, like, she probably shouldn't be seeing. Like, almost like the first movie where it's, like, death. And now she's, like, confronting sex instead and instead she's like in this weird like sitcom plot that just doesn't and weird like, go like sexless love triangle yeah and again having totally forgotten all the plot of this when she was like oh i'm gonna go stay with my uncle in la i'm like okay fucking we're gonna get a crazy uncle story he's gonna live on menace beach he's gonna mm-hmm. be a total pothead now like i like, i was genuinely interested in where this was going and they found the worst possible way to implement it because he was a fun character in the first one. He was. Absolutely. And their was. relationship felt really believable as brothers. Like, they they yeah. both, like, look like real guys. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it just felt like two real guys from the 70s who were just kind of, like, dudes. <laughs> and then uh, this was, like, dudes. a weird, like, it felt like everybody loves Raymond or something like that. It was in L.A. Everybody's in a sitcom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and poor, like, Jamie Lee Curtis was so good in the first one, and all she has to do in this one is, like, be pregnant. Be pregnant, wear wig. <laughs> Those are her bad, two jobs. Bad wig. It has Tiny Dancer in it and a good soundtrack. This was my introduction to Tiny Dancer. So It's got a lot of Elton John on the yeah. soundtrack. There's a lot of Elton John. <laughs> Apparently he's the only person that released music in the 70s. <laughs> I did like the soundtrack, I have to say. Just listen to those songs. Don't watch yeah. the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think this movie would have been, like, an okay kids movie it's just like it completely betrays everything like the one maybe kind of good scene that we all remember i guess is the 
tar pit scene where she actually talks about Thomas J, which mm-hmm. is otherwise like pretty much forgotten in this. Like, but then it's a fake out where he's like, I threw your ring over. Oops, just kidding. I was so mad. I was so mad when he still had the ring. I wanted him to have actually made a fucking mistake one time. I remember being like horrified that he had dropped it mm-hmm. like the first time. I was like, that is the Thomas J mood <laughs> ring. Like, how dare you? <laughs> From the Thomas J mood ring collection. How dare you, sir? I needed a reprisal of Weeping Willow in this movie and they did not give it to me. She sang Smile. That doesn't count? No, because... It's not an original. That's a retcon. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It should have been, like, My Girl or something. I don't know. I want to know, like, why the movie is called My Girl. Is that Was that a thing ever for Otherwise anyone? Otherwise it would have been called Veda! <laughs> that girl. Born jaundiced! <laughs> Exclamation point. <laughs> So after these movies, um, Anna Klumski starred in some movies like uh, Gold Diggers, Gold Diggers, The Secret of Bear Mountain, The Secret of Bear Mountain. Not one movie, not two movies. (laughs) Oh, that's not two movies. No, that is Gold Diggers: Colon The Secret of Bear Mountain. She went to the University of Chicago for college. Met her husband. I think she's married to a normie. Um, and she had basically like a break and was doing other things in her life that weren't acting. And then at some point she was like, you know what? I'm not feeling fulfilled. I'm going to go back into acting. And then within a few years, she's on Veep and she's getting Emmy nominated. So she was yeah. fucking phenomenal on Veep. And Veep is one of the most like stacked ensemble casts in comedy ever. But even at that, she was a standout for me. Um, and she was also uh, an excellent supporting role on the show, Hannibal. Oh, was she? Yep. You can really see like how My Girl led to Veep because it's the same kind of something about like the dialogue in My Girl that's like kind of precocious, like feels like Veep is the adult version of that with like, a lot more swearing. And, that, and that's what I was surprised by when I watched Veep. I was like, My Girl is cursing up a storm. Yeah. Well, yeah, my and, fucking girl. <laughs> her her character on that show in particular is renowned for going off on specific people. And yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen Veep, you should watch that because it's amazing and hilarious. Do you guys? recommend watching my girl if you've never seen it yes especially if if you have kids i think like around that age i think it's a great movie to watch with them but i i enjoyed it just watching it as an adult by myself i liked it i don't know i mean yeah yeah i would i wouldn't dissuade anyone from watching it i don't know if you haven't experienced the movie before like if you did watch it as a kid and you had any fondness for it i would say yeah watch it again it pretty much holds up on the same level that you probably remember it if you're coming to it new i don't know like why not but i don't know that like it offers a lot besides the nostalgia and like i don't know that it would trigger the same emotions that it did back then because it does have a certain 90s-ness to it i don't know like yeah i would say give it a try and let us know i mean because it is a weird not a straight drama for adults it's not a kids movie and so it's it's hard to recommend it to someone who doesn't already have fondness for it yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I'd say, you know, maybe give it in my world. Uh, and I, and I, would say, I would definitely say if I had a child, this would probably be a movie that I would feel comfortable and somewhat encouraged to show them, you know, once they get to that age. If only because I can't really think off the top of my head of other dramas that kind of address mortality in a mature way that's suitable for kids. You can show it to my kid and I'll go to the bar that night. <laughs> it's, a, it's a plan. <laughs> And I'll go to the tar pits. (laughs) (laughs) And our mood ring is turned black on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... We are continuing our sad tree summer. (laughs) 
Going from Weeping Willow to The Giving Tree, we'll be discussing poet and author extraordinaire Shel Silverstein and some of his most popular works, including Where the Sidewalk Ends, A Light in the Attic, Falling Up, and, of course, The Giving Tree. So go out on a limb with us for that one. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcast product. Rate and review us five stars or more on those platforms so more people see the show. And also, please contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can afford to make more episodes of this fine podcast program. I am Seth. I'm Becky. And I was born jaundiced. Thank you.